It's so good to be back with you again. I appreciate the invitation. Uh, I just have to say that as a uh, guitar player and a lifelong worship leader myself, I, I was particularly delighted with the, the worship music today. Uh, I'm, I'm sitting over here never having heard, uh, uh, what was the song, He is Worthy. I love the conversation. That was so delightful. And I'm thinking, why does this sound so ground? I'm looking over there, and there's Tom on the bass. Boom, boom, yeah. boom. And I'm, that, I'll tell you, musically, when you feel something come together, it is such a delight. You all are truly blessed. And uh, I'm always checking to see what new songs you have when I'm here. <laughs> love that. You're an interesting species, capable of such beautiful dreams and such horrible nightmares. That fascinating observation came from the first contact that astronomer Ellie Arroway makes with the technologically superior alien civilization in the acclaimed novel by Dr. Carl Sagan, Contact. Maybe you've read it, maybe you've seen the movie. It's one of my favorites. The dominant species of the Earth is called capable of such beautiful dreams and such horrible nightmares. Sagan himself was one of the most renowned astronomers of his day. And the PBS series Cosmos was his pulpit for spreading the gospel of an atheist naturalistic worldview. In my own conversations with those who think that the Bible is a collection of myths, I find that we share a common admiration for this quote from Sagan's novel. Humanity is indeed capable of such beautiful dreams and such horrible nightmares. Thinking people from both the atheist and Christian camps agree on the beautiful dreams aspect of humanity, we disagree on the reason for the nightmares. Today I'd like to summarize the Bible's explanation of the reason for human wickedness and corruption. I am convinced that the Bible offers the most coherent explanation of the reason that evil seems to outshine the good in humankind, both today and throughout human history. So let me summarize the Bible's explanation of human wickedness in this way, the Bible contends that humanity was created in the image of an all-powerful and well-intentioned creator God. That means three things in particular. Though we are more wondrous than we ever imagined, we are more wicked than we ever realized, but we are also more treasured than we ever dreamed. The explanation comes from the worldview, the conception of reality, which we find explained in the Bible. So let us turn to the word of God, that our souls may be fed and our eyes may be opened. Reading from Genesis chapter 1, verses 20 to the first part of verse 27. <clears throat> Hear now the word of the Lord. Then God said... 
Let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth, across the face of the firmament of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures, and every living thing that moves with, uh, with which the waters abounded, according to their kind, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth, each according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps in the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, According to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. People of God, this is the word of the Lord. The foundation of the Christian worldview is that there is a God, and that as the pinnacle of his creation, he designed humankind in his image. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? It means that we are more wondrous than we ever imagined. And that is my first point, that being created in the image of God, we are more wondrous than we ever imagined. The psalmist writes, for you created my inmost being, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. In the 2,000 years of church history, those who studied the Bible most intently have summarized what the scriptures tell us about the nature of God. What is God like? What is he made of? What kind of powers does he display? These theologians have made a point to draw these distinctions between what defines God and the characteristics of those whom he has crafted in his image. Their descriptors fall into two categories, the communicable attributes of God and the incommunicable attributes of God. Some of God's attributes can be communicated or given to us, uh, others cannot. Um, God is an infinite being. Humans are merely finite beings. And so there are differences in the way that Godness is expressed in us based on those kinds of limits. A photograph may naturally reflect an image of who you are, but it can't contain the full breadth of your essence. In the same way, even though humankind is wondrously superior to every other form of life on this planet, there are limits to how much of God we can reflect in this image. For instance, the Bible explains that God is sufficient unto himself. He needs nothing from anyone, nor anything else, to exist and to live and to display his infinite power. The Apostle Paul, speaking to the learned philosophers of Athens on the Areopagus, as recorded in Acts 17, said this, 
The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Today, we will consider only three of the many attributes which God's communicated to Adam and Eve when he shaped the body and soul combination that defines what it is to be human. There are three communicable attributes of God that I've chosen. They're these. One, humans are rational beings. Two, humans are creative beings. And three, humans are free moral beings. Now, as rational beings, we know we exist. Science refers to this quality as sentience. Uh, for you science fiction fans out there, or Star Trek fans, you'll know if there is sentient life that the Prime Directive says, you've got to be careful about that. If there is life which is aware of its existence, that is special, and we recognize that. You think and reason. You have the capacity to conceptualize things, and I... And, uh, conceptualize things and ideas outside of yourself and outside of your experience. You can conceive in your mind how to solve problems. And this capacity to think and to reason makes us an astounding species on this planet. But we don't even come close to what that ability looks like in an infinite God. Secondly, you are a creative being. You have the capacity to imagine and to invent. You can take the physical materials of this world to craft and to reshape uh, for a variety of purposes. You also have the capacity to bring order to chaos. That's what gardening is all about. You, you take something wild and you shape it into something that creates a new kind of beauty. We humans can also invent and shape mental constructs uh, like economics, and mathematics, and chemistry. You have then the capacity to bring order to chaos. When God created Adam, he said, I fashioned you to rule my, over my creation. So explore the world and think about everything that I've made here. Define them, give them names, the animals, everything. Keep this garden. Bring order to it. It's yours to command. Oh, and bear children. And fill the earth with families. And teach them. Let them join you in this task. Theologians, theologians call this command the cultural mandate of God to Adam. And so humankind has created culture and brought structure and order and beauty to the world. Thirdly, we are not only rational beings, not only creative beings, we are also moral beings. God is a free moral being. He is all-knowing, all-powerful, and he has created a universe and a reality which reflects his choices of what is right and wrong, better and best, good and evil. God has affections. He loves what he has chosen to be good and true and right, and he hates whatever is contrary to his moral will. God also gave us moral essence, the ability to use 
the knowledge of the facts that you've analyzed and then to make choices based on what you love and hate. However, some today would say that hate is a morally wrong value, that we should replace hate with love. I would say that's a shallow understanding of reality. My seminary professor related a newspaper article he once read from his hometown paper in Northern California. It seems that a young mother was sitting on her front lawn one sunny day with her infant son playing on a blanket in the sun. Without warning, a ferocious dog, a Rottweiler, got loose from its owner and was charging toward the baby in front of her. Leaping to her feet, the mother reached the baby just as the dog had grasped the child in his jaws between his teeth. And grabbing these powerful jaws, that young mother pulled them apart with such force that she killed the dog. My seminary professor then asked us this question. Was that an act of love or an act of hate? What do you think? Was it an act of love or an act of hate? It was both. For that young mother to choose to hate that which threatened what she loved means that they're, they are both tied together. And as moral beings, we will choose to love that which has captured our affections and we will hate that which threatens what we love. But what if someone was able to hijack those affections? What if they could convince you that you didn't have all the facts and that the truth would change the way that you look at good and evil? In fact, that is exactly what happened to Adam and Eve. Their affections were hijacked by a lie. And when they chose to believe that lie and to act on it, the entire human race entered into a state of war with heaven. And the crown of God's creation became corrupted and spoiled. That is my second point that we are more wondrous than we ever imagined, but we are more wicked than we ever realized. In Genesis 2, starting in verse 15, we read, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. For the first man... And first woman, so incredibly blessed by God as the king and queen above all creation, whose every day was idyllic and for whom creative work was an inspiring joy, I suspect that no piece of fruit could look so good that it would compel them to give all that up. The truth is that the fruit was the key to the most alluring temptation possible. The lure that pulled Adam and Eve away from God began with a seed of doubt. 
Earlier in the worship liturgy, we heard a reading from Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3 tells us of the preeminent fallen angel, Satan himself, who approaches Adam and Eve in the familiar form of a serpent. What is unfamiliar is that this serpent talks. That is enough of an unexpected turn to get their attention and a hearing. God permits Satan to enter the garden, and even though he knows this adversary intends to subvert the order established by the God of creation, he permits it. So then what happens? In the person of the serpent, Satan questions God's truthfulness, he contradicts God's warning, and he lies about the effects of eating the tree's fruit. First, he questions God's truthfulness. Really? Did God say, actually, that you couldn't eat from any tree that you wanted? Did he? Then he contradicts God's warning. You will not surely die. Satan openly accuses God of falsehood, for he asserts that the pronouncement of death is false and deceiving. Finally, he completes the ensemble with a lie about the effects of the tree's fruit. Verse 5, For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Eve, Eve, the only difference between you and God is that he found that magic tree first. And it is a magic tree. You can be just like him if you eat from its fruit. You can be in charge. Whatever you choose, however you choose to view things, that is what reality will be for you. That's what being like God is all about. You get to decide what will be right and what will be wrong. Your own special morality system. Now that's a temptation. And if this kind of talk sounds familiar to you, it may be because this kind of talk describes American pluralism today. Truth is like a grocery store. You go down the aisles and whatever truths appeal to you, you place them in your basket. And nobody is permitted to make you feel bad about your choices, either because it's your choice. Above all, what must be honored is your personal preference. You will become like God. You get to choose what is good and evil, what is right and what is wrong. Well, that may be true for you, but it's not true for me. In other words, don't try to push your antiquated ideas about Jesus on me. I don't believe it, and therefore, it's not true. Picking up in verse 6 of Genesis 3, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Eve 
decides that she will be a modern, independent woman. She will decide truth for herself. John Calvin observes that very dangerous is the temptation when it is suggested to us that God is not to be obeyed except so far as the reason of his command is apparent. If it doesn't make sense to me, then I'm not going along with this deal. And this, my friends, is the core of the sin principle that lives within us, self-centeredness. The way that I see the world is what is reality. And Adam was even worse because he knew what he was doing. Uh, With Eve, Satan used trickery. But with Adam, Adam chooses to defy God and to embrace Satan's propaganda. 1 Timothy 2.14 explains that Adam knows exactly what he's doing when he takes the, the fruit from Eve. Adam was not the one deceived, Paul writes to Timothy. It was the woman who was deceived. Adam covets more than what is lawful under God's created world order. John Calvin once again puts it succinctly. Adam, he says, gave greater credit to the flatteries of the devil than to the sacred word of God. Hence flowed ambition and pride, so that the woman first and then her husband desired to exalt themselves above God. Here also, monstrous ingratitude betrays itself. They had been made in the likeness of God, but this seems a small thing unless equality be added to it. Picking up in verse 7 of Genesis 3, we read, Then the eyes of both them were opened. Then the man and his wife hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And friends, we've been hiding from God ever since then. What Adam and Eve did that day in the garden changed the relationship of all humanity to its creator. The human race is estranged from God in the worst possible way, and our very natures are submitted to a world order and mindset which defies God on impulse. Apart from the compelling grace of God, mankind's natural state is that of existing in a silly and desperate defiance of the living, sovereign, all-powerful God. David Fettis comments, As a race, we have a cosmic authority problem. The Bible says you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. That's from Colossians. Jesus says men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. When we do wrong, our chief problem is not that we don't know what God wants, but that we don't want what God wants. We just plain don't like the God of the Bible. We especially don't like his authority. We don't like his authority to command obedience. We don't like his authority to run the world in ways that don't fit our ideas. We don't like his authority to decide our destiny. We fear that God would limit our freedom, stifle our thinking, and ruin our fun. We don't want a universe where the supreme being is who the Bible says he is. We want to run our own lives. 
So we rebel and we believe what we want. Professor Thomas Nagel, who until recently taught philosophy and law at NYU for 36 years, says this, I want atheism to be true, and I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It, it isn't just that I don't believe in God, it's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. Astonishingly, in spite of humankind's in-your-face, grasping for, for power kind of defiance, the Almighty God who created us came after us in love to rescue us from our inevitable condemnation by the court of heaven. The good news of the Bible is that God immediately launched a rescue and recovery mission. As the account in Genesis 3 continues, Almighty God confronts the man and woman about their choosing to believe the serpent's lies. But before he describes the consequences of their defiance, God first, first pronounces a curse on the serpent and then declares war on the rebellious angel who has possessed the creature. I will put enmity between you and the woman, he says to Satan, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. This is what theologians have called the proto-evangelium, the message of the gospel in its very earliest form. This declaration is the first hint that God plans to rescue the crown of his creation from the consequences of our sin. A descendant of Eve will become the champion of her redemption. This is who Jesus is. This is why he took a human nature onto himself. John, one of Jesus' closest disciples, wrote this, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. The good news of the gospel is that the one we know as Jesus is, in fact, God the Son who has become our champion and who has freed us from the consequences of our pledge of allegiance to Satan's lie. Christ himself endured the execution that we deserved. In a cosmic battle with Christ the Son of God, the strongest blow which Satan could land would bring a momentary victory for him, only to be swallowed up by the death blow delivered by God's champion, which would defeat Satan utterly and completely. But it is also this wondrous story, a wondrous story because death could not hold him, and he lives to be our champion for eternity. That is why he deserves our worship, our complete and joyful devotion. We have been rescued, but we have also been recovered. And those who choose to take hold of the lifeline that God has extended to all humanity are promised that real life will be restored to them. Now, let us not forget that oft-quoted explanation that Jesus gave. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. 
We are set free to become what we were meant to be, to experience a worshiping relationship with God instead of pursuing that which does not satisfy. Peter, one of the other disciples who was closest to Jesus, opens his letter to the church at large with an explosion of joyfulness. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. So that summarizes what the Bible's explanation of evil uh, and wickedness in the world is. All humanity was created in the image of an all-powerful and well-intentioned creator God. He made us like himself. And as the pinnacle of his creation, we are more wondrous than we ever imagined. And though we became more wicked than we ever realized, we discovered that we were also more treasured than we ever dreamed. Because the God who made the universe is a God whose love is so very great, we have, been, we have not been left in slavish despair to the sin which has twisted and deformed the original image of God in which we were created. If you are here today and you are hesitant to embrace this entirety of this remarkable story, I can certainly understand why it would give you pause. For one thing, it raises so many more questions, questions that have perplexed good and genuine thinking people for centuries. I suggest to you that if this is your situation, that it is enough to trust God for what you can understand and to move forward in the grace that he offers while you search out the deeper questions. Another reason to hesitate is that there are so many other voices out there who are insistent that the good news of Jesus is a silly scam created by people who want to control you. Well, there seems to be no end in sight of people who want to control you today. My question for you is whether you think that they have found the deeper inner satisfaction and peace in life, which is the deepest longing of the human heart. May I suggest to you that you talk to people whom you trust who have embraced the good news of Jesus. Ask them about their personal experience with the gospel. The answer to the dilemma of man's inhumanity to man matters to all of us because I think we realize that we are meant for something much greater than what seems to be the common human experience. If indeed we are a species capable of such beautiful dreams, why should we remain under the power of the horrible nightmares that we see all around us? Throughout the many decades of my lifetime, I have found nothing that compares to what the gospel of Jesus Christ has actually delivered to me personally. And if you too are among those of us who have embraced this good news, then I encourage you to joyfully share that news with others who have not yet understood it. For as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I will say it once again, we have become citizens of heaven, left on earth to tell citizens of earth how to become citizens of heaven. Let's pray.
Oh God, how deep and wide and high must your love be. That having done what we did, having by nature made ourselves your enemies, that you would pursue us in love. I thank you for the grace that I have received. I thank you for the testimony of others who have also encountered this understanding of your truth in such a way that it has transformed their lives. And I pray for those who are in the process now of considering for themselves what they will do with what they have heard. Grant them your insight, I pray. We thank you for these things. In the name of the Lord Jesus, amen.